This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Kate Wright and Martin Scott, who, along with Melanie Bunce, are the authors of Humanitarian Journalists Covering Crises from a Boundary Zone. Uh, so welcome to the podcast. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having us. Um, to kick off with, um, maybe I'll, I'll start with you, Kate. Um, could you say a bit about how you ended up kind of working together um, and, and I suppose, what's the sort of motivation and, and, and process um, behind writing the book? Well, we've, we've actually been co-authoring for an embarrassing number of years now. I think we worked out the other night it was nearly 10, uh, which is amazing, given that when anyone says co-authoring, most academics roll their eyes, sigh heavily uh, and talk, come out with all sorts of dreadful stories. Um, I think we all work in quite different disciplines. So Martin's in international development. I'm in politics and international relations and Nell's in journalism, which is always interesting. Um, But it all stemmed back from, you know, when we were all doing our PhDs and and Martin contacted me about a piece I'd done on radio representations of suffering, because apparently I was the only one. I was terribly enthusiastic and lovely. And then when he approached me to see if I knew someone who'd worked uh, in ethnographies, I recommended Mel's work because I knew her. And so it kind of goes back about a decade uh, but we are each other's reviewer two and reviewer three, basically. We're quite tough with each other so that when something finally goes forward, hopefully it's already gone through that sort of critical review stage. But this particular book um, came about because we'd heard of an organisation which used to be embedded within uh, the UN called Iring, And I knew that from when I used to work on uh, BBC World Service's Africa desk. I used them a lot. And we saw that they were the leaving UN and they were, they were going independent. And so we had a chat with the journalists there and they said, oh, why don't you kind of come in and keep us honest? Come in and see what we do for a year. And we knew they were going to go and be funded by a private foundation called the Ginwell Foundation, uh, which we'd never heard of. So we thought that was quite interesting. Uh, and unfortunately, it was like watching a very slow car crash over the course of that year. Because the the foundation they were getting most, not all, but most of their funding for, um, was run by a chap called Joe Lowe, uh, who was a Malaysian businessman. And over the course of the year, 
allegations against Mr. Lowe got more credible and more serious um, until we kind of had to uh, watch them dealing with these allegations which pertain to embezzlement from a, a development bank. At the time, there were no criminal charges against Mr. Lowe, but there now are. Uh, it looks as if he was potentially central uh, to that scandal. So we were in all these board meetings with Irin as they were discussing what to do as these allegations got worse and worse. And, and we were very interested in, in when and why they made the decision to, to part ways with this particular donor in order to keep their own credibility. So it just got us really interested in this whole sort of precarious world of very highly specialised humanitarian news outlets, um, in part because they seemed to be having such a terribly difficult time, and in part because we were convinced that they were doing something genuinely different that was worth attention. I mean, one thing that would be useful there, and you flagged this really, really uh, clearly, is the sense of what actually is a humanitarian journalist, you know, what are these humanitarian uh, journalistic uh, organisations? And and I guess, like, what one thing that's really sort of crucial there is the sense of them being different from normal, conventional uh, j- journalists. And, and I guess th- this might be one for you, Martin, because um, I, I know you've, you've done a, a lot of thinking about the kind of boundaries and, and, and boundary drawing. Uh, around this category. So, so what is a humanitarian journalist? Yeah, uh, thanks very much. Yeah, so uh, I guess what well, the book, I mean, that's the central object of the book is to try and understand what they are because we, we uh, as part of this wider research, we interviewed over 100 journalists who cover humanitarian crises. And there are those who cover it in ways you would expect, those kind of mainstream journalists who see humanitarian crises as a subject area. Uh, just like any other subject area, and they apply their conventional news values to humanitarian crises as they would if they were covering a business or sport or politics or anything else. They're kind of straightforward mainstream journalists in which they cover humanitarian crises when they are newsworthy. And they are newsworthy if there is um, a clear, timely uh, event happening that's easy to explain, that has good imagery, that has some kind of resonance with your audience, etc. So that's that's a conventional journalist. They cover things when they're newsworthy. But what we're trying to kind of describe in this book is that that's not the only way of covering humanitarian crisis, and they're not the only journalists around. Uh, as Kate was talking about, there, there's journalists that we observed in what's now called the New Humanitarian and other smaller specialised news organisations that deliberately define what they do in contrast to these mainstream journalists. So they say that often they've left mainstream news organisations to go to places like the New Humanitarian because they they operate with different news selection. They choose crises because they are underreported. So why are you covering Mali? I'm doing it because nobody else is. Equally, when you're covering Mali, for example, and the humanitarian crisis there, they deliberately choose to speak to people who don't normally appear in the news. Uh, they're kind of uh, uh, amplifying marginalised voices. So they're, they're, de- they're deliberately doing uh, things that mainstream journalists don't do. And in the book, we describe that um, what, what, what underpins all this is that they're combining not just journalistic norms of independence, of promoting accountability, of pursuing truth, um, 
so they have their journalistic norms, but they combine these with these humanitarian norms. And so the idea of reporting the underreported or giving um, uh, amplifying voices, marginalized voices, is about the, the humanitarian idea that all lives are equal. And that no matter where you live, if you are suffering, that that deserves equal attention and that therefore we should report the underreported. Um, so that's what a humanitarian journalist is. A humanitarian journalist is, is a uh, professional communicator about humanitarian crises in ways that are both journalistic and humanitarian. That sense of both journalistic and humanitarian. Throughout the book, you use um, a particular theoretical framework that this idea of, of fields um, and, and you talk about there being a journalistic field and a humanitarian field and, and actually the kind of the idea of you know a, a sort of a boundary zone that's in the book's title talks to the way that um, humanitarian journalists you know are sort of across these uh, spaces or you know these fields and, and it'd be handy again as a bit of a kind of ground clearing exercise to get a sense of um, not in, in too much detail because because the, the book is you know really theoretically, uh, rich on this, but but the sense of kind of what is a field? How does it relate to, um, for example, the idea of there being a journalistic and a humanitarian field? Okay, do you want to take oh, this? Martin. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, happy, happy to take it. So um, the idea of a field is really, really useful in journalism studies. Lots of researchers who write about journalism describe it as a field. It's useful because it's a way of making sense of how, how journalists work. A field is a kind of area of professional practice. So there's there's an academic field. Kate and I work in an academic field in which what it means to be an academic or a journalist or a humanitarian or, or, or religious field, or political field, what it means to what, what good professional practice is, is shaped by the nature of that field. So in a journalistic field, good journalism is determined by the com competition and interactions between all the different actors who call themselves journalists. So in the journalistic field, in the middle, the best actors in the, in the journalistic field are, for example, the BBC. The BBC would say, and many people around the world would say, the BBC is an excellent example of good journalism. Now, is that just natural and inevitable? Is, is good journalism a fixed universal idea? Is it, is it existed since time immemorial? No. Good journalism, what it means to be a good journalism, is, a, is, a, is an outcome of a competition between different journalistic actors in competition with each other in what you might call a field. And the winner, the current winner of that competition is the BBC. It sits in the middle of this field. Uh, if you work for the BBC, you have a lot of status and credibility. People regard you as being very good journalism. Um, and, and that's why the idea of a field, this kind of professional area of social life in which all the actors, all the kind of organizations and individuals who work in that specialist area all compete with each other to be good journalists or good academics or good humanitarians. So it's just a kind of a shorthand conceptual lens to kind of make sense of, of the complicated factors that shape journalism. The shorthand for us is to say, well, they're in a field. They all they all kind of agree on the rules of the game and they all compete with each other to be the best journalist. And they all share the same ideas of what journalism is and should be and who is, and crucially, who is not, who is outside the journalistic field. So that's what I'd see a field as. 
I mean, the, the point about humanitarian journalists is that they're not at the centre of the journalistic field. And, and one of the things the book does is tries to think about how they occupy uh, or move between, or indeed, to quote the title, I mean, the boundary zone between uh, two different fields. And, and, and Kate, I wonder if you could say a bit about, I suppose, both what it means to be in that boundary zone, but also, and, and because there are you know, lots of humanitarian journalists in, in the book, how the humanitarian journalists themselves kind of think about uh, the boundary zone they occupy, how they sort of describe themselves, talk about this, and how they kind of cope being between these uh, two worlds, between these two fields. All right. So, I mean, I guess I'd pro- probably start off by saying when we talk about boundary work, often what we're talking about is demarcating a boundary, right? Saying who is and who is not a journalist. So to give you an example of that, we did a previous study on uh, state-funded international journalism. And we found that almost all of the journalists we looked at from different outlets had a way of saying who was not really a journalist. So RT was the the common bogeyman. RT, they do propaganda. It's not real journalism. We do soft power, but we're still journalists. So it's about forming that hard line normally. But what we were looking at was something different, which was sort of fuzzy boundaries, if you like, which aren't a a neat, straight, clear line. They're grey areas. Um, And I got interested in this area way back in doing my PhD at Goldsmiths, which is a long time ago now. And I was interested in freelancers who sort of popped backwards and forwards, who worked for aid agencies and news organisations. And they were a bit like bees, you know, they were sort of cross-pollinating between different areas, um, particularly cross-pollinating different kinds of values. So we got a lot more interested in fuzzy boundaries. And, you know, what it's like to be a peripheral actor in a field, not at the centre like the BBC, but in the margins. And we came across some some research uh, by Eel about thick boundaries, which are those kind of grey zones, those fuzzy areas, which both separate and connect fields. And, And what are they like? And we started thinking, actually, a lot of these kinds of organizations and people we're talking about, they sit in this area because they have the opportunities which are afforded to them by both fields. But they also carry a lot of risks, particularly precarity, because they don't really belong to one field or the other. So how do they cope? Good question. Uh, I often wonder why they do it, because it is such a hand-to-mouth business financially. Often, one of the things I would say in terms of how they cope is they're quite supportive of each other. As Martin said, very very unlike fellow journalists who are quite kind of sharp-elbowed individuals and quite competitive. Uh, They don't see each other as competitors. They see each other as as part of the the same community. There's kind of a solidarity and a friendliness and a kindness there. And you do find that journalists move round between these outlets. So if one folds you sometimes find them popping up uh, in another. But I think there's the, the two aspects I would suggest, this kind of ambiguous grey zone. But one more thing I want to flag up is, particularly about freelancers, which really interests me, um, strategic ambiguity, having that fuzziness or that blurriness about what you do can work in your favour. And particularly when I'm thinking about freelancers pitching stories, um, to editors who may live in a completely different region to them or 
different country. Um, you know, how the sort of strategic ambiguity of humanitarianism or humanitarian journalism helps them. So I'll give you an example. I had um, a, a stringer in Yemen who we were um, talking to. And a lot of the people doing this are, are not based in the West. Um, and he was talking about how do I pitch a story to an editor in Qatar who doesn't really know that much about Yemen. And he, he wanted to pitch a story about organ smuggling. People were selling their bodily organs uh, and they were then being smuggled across the border into uh, Saudi Arabia. And he said, well, look, you know, is this a crime story? Is this a political story? Is this a religious story? Because the mullahs are all turning a blind eye to, to what would be haram uh, to any Muslim. But actually, I can't pitch that to an editor because it's so complicated, they won't get it. They will have mentally turned off when I'm halfway through trying to explain it. But if I say it's a humanitarian story and people are doing this because they're desperate, uh, they kind of feel like we might be roughly on the same page and then they might listen to the rest of it. So in that instance, what I mean by strategic ambiguity is that the fuzziness of what humanitarianism is, is used by that stringer to pitch a story which they might otherwise not get into any outlet because it's so complex. That sort of strikes me as um, a benefit or almost the kind of an advantage um, of, of being, um, I guess, kind of between fields. And, and I wonder, uh, just, just to stay with you, Kate, for a moment, whether you could sort of unpack that a bit in, in terms of, I suppose, field theory tends to, to kind of um, gesture towards the idea of people on the periphery of a field, you know, might struggle. Uh, they're not, you know, to give Martin's example, they're not the BBC in terms, of, you know, the kind of winners who are setting the agenda in, in terms of these um, contests in fields. But but actually one of the things the middle of the book tries to do is says, you know, there's real kind of benefits and you've given a really good one uh, with, with the example from Yemen there. But I, I wonder um, what other benefits there are in terms of, you know, for the news, but also actually in, in terms of for kind of humanitarianism and, and for human rights uh, campaigns as well. Sure. I mean, I guess um, the key advantage for the people doing this on a personal level is that they get to do the kind of journalism they want to do. You know, it's a question of, you know, what Bourdieu would call illusio. It's about that sense of what do you think journalism should be for? Why is it meaningful? Why does it have value in this world? And the people we're talking to are often saying, what we really want to do is, is have some sort of an impact, you know, bring about some sort of a positive change, but without necessarily being activists or advocates for any a particular aid organization so there was there's something very um value driven about it in a, in a normative sense i think the blurriness of of it is quite interesting because it means that different sorts of articles are cropping up in these outlets and often much more detailed policy conversations are being had in these outlets a lot of the people that we're talking about really are absolute experts, not just in, in their particular country, like my stringer, but also in the humanitarian aid system conceptualized in a more institutional sense. They know about policies, they know about actors, they know about structures. So I think in terms of benefiting 
humanitarianism. If you're interested in best practice or you're interested in policy conversations in a more sophisticated sense, these are the kind of outlets you should be reading, to be honest, because that's where those conversations are happening. Yeah, can I can I just add a little bit more? But I think just uh, as you were speaking, Kate, I, I, I was recalling some of the conversations we had, and I, I guess it, I'd like to emphasise the frustration that some of these journalists feel with dominant journal, mainstream journalistic practices. Um, if you only cover humanitarian crises when they are newsworthy, then most of the time you don't cover humanitarian crises. Um, the, uh, Care International recently released a port of, report of the top 10 underreported humanitarian crises in the world and, uh, and does so every year. And there are large swathes of humanity and large, large, large scale crises happening around the world, which very few people know about because they're not newsworthy and because a conventional journalistic funding model doesn't allow for regular news coverage of those things. And, and humanitarian journalists were happy to take the hit of precariousness to, 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 to not be mainstream journalists and to lose, the, lose a degree of credibility and financial security associated with those things so that they could report humanitarian crisis. Um, a few recent statistics from, uh, from the UN. Um, the UN uh, this year needs over $50 billion, uh, $50 billion to cover the humanitarian needs of over 330 million people. That's an increase of 25% from last year. So humanitarian needs are escalating rapidly, driven by climate change, and other uh, effects, pandemics, etc. And uh, and yet these needs are rarely met on average, being about 50% funded. And the idea that that's okay because these things aren't newsworthy is 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 not enough for these journalists. And that's why they go to the boundary zone or become humanitarian journalists and and are happy to take the cut in their perhaps pay or or terms and conditions or, or, or precariousness, not always, but in, in general, there's a, there's a sense that it's a bit more challenging to be a humanitarian journalist. They're willing to do that because it means that they can report on what they, what they see and what is a, a, a really important issue. I mean, you've neatly set up there actually two questions, one of which is the title of one of the chapters. And maybe I'll ask the first one to you, Martin, and then pose the second one to, to Kate. So, so first of all is, would it help if we saw humanitarian journalists and humanitarian journalism as a field in itself, you know, if it had this own kind of unique uh, sort, sort of status, uh, which meant that it wasn't, you know, as you've described, subject to particular kinds of precarity, it wasn't peripheral to mainstream journalism, it was, you know, perhaps funded in, in different ways with, with different uh, kind of, you know, organisational uh, setups, different sources of revenue, uh, different kinds of, of status for uh, particular practices again to think back to to Kate's example that, that she gave us earlier so is it becoming a field in the making would that be a good thing you know or, or actually are there problems when things get to be fields on their own yeah, yeah it's a great question so it's a, 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 um, is it a boundary zone or, or why isn't it just a field I guess I guess we conclude in the book that, that, that it isn't a field there is no field of humanitarian journalism it is a precarious peripheral uh, um, uh, 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 relatively rare practice it is at a boundary zone it's not a field why lots of reasons one of them is because most of the people we spoke to did not self-identify as humanitarian journalists despite the name of the book that's our name 
we called we're calling them humanitarian journalists they didn't say to us hello i am a humanitarian journalist this is this is how i do my practice that that's that's what came from our analysis of them when we listened to enough and did enough interviews with enough of uh, these journalists who described their work in similar ways it seemed very clear to us that there are these 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 uh, professional communicators who were describing their professional practices in ways that combine journalistic and humanitarian norms. So it seems to us, it looks like they're humanitarian journalists, but we're really the only people using that. So it does not exist as a field at the moment, uh, um, um, or at least it didn't when we when we finished our data collection a few years ago. I think there is a case for saying it may be that that, that, that may be changed since we finished data collection. For example, the New Humanitarian uh, is a, a, a kind of the biggest news organization in this particular area, and it is it has a lot more funding, has a lot more staff, has a lot more status and credibility. Um, it may be the maybe the exception rather than the rule, but perhaps there is a growing field here of humanitarian journalism. Now, the second part of your question is: is that a, is that a good thing? Should there be a field of humanitarianism? Gosh, um, I guess at the premise of our book is that if the only way that humanitarian crises are being covered is through conventional mainstream journalistic norms, there is a problem with that. The problem is that humanitarian crises are scarcely covered. When they are, they're usually covered through a charity frame. Only a small number of those crises get covered, and they're usually covered from the perspective of a small number of powerful actors. And that's a problem. That is that is that is a very well documented problem of how journalism generally communicates about humanitarian crisis. So any kind of plurality, the addition of alternative ways of covering humanitarian crisis, I think the, the premise of us writing that book is that that's a good thing. That's not to say that humanitarian journalists themselves have a blind, don't have their own blind spots. We're not saying that humanitarian journalism is inherently better than mainstream journalism. We're definitely not saying that. There is uh, just to finish up my point, there is, there is, there is, they have their own blind spots. For example, the humanitarian norm of do no harm could contradict with the journalistic norm of accountability and watchdogs. So, so some of the humanitarian journalists we spoke to were, you know, admitted themselves that there was a danger that they might be not as critical of the industry as they should be because they didn't want to they basically do no harm. So there's, there's, there's uh, I guess, pros and cons of mainstream journalistic practice and humanitarian journalistic practices, but, but, but to only have one is a problem. I mean, just very um, sort of finally, before I come, come back to Kate, um, I just, just wonder if you could sort of slightly extend um, that discussion of, of the sort of pros and cons of a field into this question of how can we support humanitarian journalism better? Because obviously, you know, as, as you say in the book, you, you know, you're critical, obviously, you know, it's an academic analysis, but it's clear, you know, this is a good thing. Humanitarian journalism is a good thing. We need more of it. We need to support it properly. So how could we do that? Yeah, okay. I guess just briefly, thanks Thanks for the question. I guess 
as academics, we're, we're not trying to say this is how the world should be. We're trying to say, uh, uh, we're trying to kind of critique the conventional practices and ask, are there alternatives? Uh, and so for audiences, we want audiences to know that there are other sources of journalism, professional journalism out there that you can consume. If you want to find out about humanitarian crisis, the new humanitarian, DevEx, Human Angle, Interpress Service, uh, follow freelancers in these countries. There are a range of other good practices around there that you can consume for donors uh, and we're talking about government donors and and uh, philanthropic foundations private foundations um uh, they their decision making about where they give their money to support independent journalism independent international journalism is crucial uh, most of the new humanitarians funding comes from private foundations and bilateral donors and for those donors to accept that this journalism would often not exist without them is important. And for them to make decisions about what kinds of journalism to support, I guess, I guess that, that's what we'd encourage them to do. That, that finally, the wider point here is that journalism in general is facing an economic crisis. There are no, most forms of journalism do not have an obvious, clear uh, economic model. Journalism in general is, is, is financially in trouble. And we think humanitarian journalism, journalism about humanitarian crisis, often bears the brunt of that economic crisis. So in thinking about new financial models for journalism, we would encourage people to pay particular attention to international journalism. What, what kinds of funding models are there to support good communication practices about crucial events around the world uh, and so that's a conversation for audiences that's for donors um, that's for subscribers uh, and, and, and finally while I, while I finally have the mic if 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 a journalist says to you that uh, they didn't cover humanitarian crisis because they're simply not newsworthy I, I hope the book can allow a pushback on that it is not inevitable that 330 million people around the world needing humanitarian assistance is just not news. News is a social construct shaped by economic and political forces, and uh, there is another way. Martin's really set up the um, urgency um, of, of the book's analysis, and, and it strikes me as, as a way of concluding. There's also a question in terms of where you go next um, and to come back, you know, to, to where we started, the, the, the first question about both the kind of the writing relationship, but also, I guess, the kind of project uh, relationship that the three of you have got. And so where next for kind of, you know, the work and, and where next in, in terms of writing too? I mean, I think um, the big thing we're concentrating on at the moment is impact, which is an awful academic term for trying to make sure that people who could actually use your research know about it. Um, so we've been asked down to meet uh, the UK Shadow Foreign Secretary next month, David Lammy. Um, so it'll be interesting to see why he wants to know uh, what we've been doing, what he wants to find out. Um, I think certainly any possibility that we could raise the profile of some of the outlets we've been working with would be welcome uh, in terms of, um, yeah, who knows, maybe even preparing uh, uh, Labour to move into government, who knows. Um, the other thing we have been, we've been doing, which kind of comes from the project, but it's not specifically about this book, was looking at the impact of news about humanitarian issues 
on political decision-making. And we did a, a piece which looked at uh, the 16 top humanitarian donors, that is, governments, and, and what influenced their decision-making um, in relation to, to media, what kinds of influence media exerted on their allocation of humanitarian aid and, and in what kind of circumstances that influence was most felt because we felt it, it really was high time to move on even from critiques of CNN effect to think about media in a more complex way and, and governance in a more complex way. So we were looking at the role of bureaucrats in particular and uh, of course all the UN agencies want to find out about what we found, you know, what makes governments give more is kind of the $70 million question for them at the moment. So we're working with uh, UN agencies, the European Body ECHO and ICRC, um, to find out whether their humanitarian strategies might benefit from knowing about what affects governments. Did it really help, help governments give more or not? And then I think as sort of a different departure for us, um, we've started working a lot more on uh, media freedom. So Martin and Mel have got a new project on that. And uh, I've been uh, lead authoring a book we're writing together, uh, which is about a different sort of economic model. It's about the, the politicization of uh, the Voice of America network under Trump. And we got interested in Voice of America because it was one of the mainstream news outlets that did cover a lot of humanitarian news. So we sort of knew them from that. Um, but when some a quite well-publicized controversy emerged about the leadership of a man uh, called Michael Pack, who was the Trump appointee to the federal agency in which VOA is embedded, we sort of went to them and said, look, we'd, we'd really like to find out some more about what happened here um, in terms of helping us understand the politicization of international public service media. So after a quite a lot of loyally, um, uh, as in conduct through lawyers, um, debates and contracts, they agreed to give us interviews with all of their top managers and a good um, sample of their, their journalists. Uh, and we also got hold of seven different uh, archives, which were compiled through freedom of information requests, which included a lot of the emails which went forward, backwards and forwards between um, Michael Pack, uh, White House officials, conservative media, and of course, journalists. So we can actually see what was going on behind the scenes. So that's the book that we are writing next. <laughs>